You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. The scripture reading this morning, our Old Testament reading is from Exodus chapter 30, the verses 11 to 16, and then we'll go to Ephesians 6, the verses 10 to 17. First of all, then, we go to Exodus 30, verses 11 to 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. Each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half shekel according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras. This half shekel is an offering to the Lord. All who cross over, those twenty years old or more, are to give an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than a half shekel, and the poor are not to give less when you make the offering to the Lord to atone for your lives. Receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord, making atonement for your lives. And we turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. I preach to you this morning from the word of our God as you find it in the book of Numbers, chapter 1. And our text goes from verse 2 to 46. I'll also read verse 1 for the context. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. He said, Take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name, one by one. You and Aaron are to number by their divisions all the men of Israel, twenty years old or more, who are able to serve in the army. One man from each tribe, each the head of his family, is to help you. These are the names of the men who are to assist you, from Reuben, Elizur, son of Shadur, from Simeon, Shalumiel, son of Zerashadai, from Judah, nation, son of Amminadab, from Issachar, Nathanael, son of Zuar, from Zebulun, Eliab, son of Helon. From the sons of Joseph, from Ephraim, Elishema, son of Amihud. From Manasseh, Gamaliel, son of Padazur. 
From Benjamin, Abidan, son of Gideon. From Dan, Ahiezer, son of Amishadai. From Asher, Pagiel, son of Okran. From Gad, Eliasaph, son of Duel. From Naphtali, Ahira, son of Enan. These were the men appointed from the community, the leaders of their ancestral tribes. They were the heads of the clans of Israel. Moses and Aaron took these men whose names had been given and they called the whole community together on the first day of the second month. The people indicated their ancestry by their clans and families and the men 20 years old or more were listed by name one by one as the Lord commanded Moses. And so he counted them in the desert of Sinai. From the descendants of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were listed by name, one by one according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Reuben was 46,500. From the tribe were the descendants of Simeon, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were counted and listed by name, one by one according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Simeon was 59,300. From the descendants of Gad, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were listed by name according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Gad was 45,650. And then from the descendants of Judah, and I'm not going to read all of these refrains, but you'll notice from the descendants of Judah, 74,600. From the descendants of Issachar, 54,400. From the descendants of Zebulun, 57,400. From the sons of Joseph, Ephraim, 40,500. Manasseh, 32,200. Benjamin, 35,400. Dan, 62,700. Asher, 41,500. Naphtali, 53,400. These were the men counted by Moses and Aaron and the 12 leaders of Israel, each one representing his family. All the Israelites, 20 years old or more, who were able to serve in Israel's army were counted according to their families. The total number was 603,550. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, I am sure that we all have favorite Bible passages And I'm also sure, almost totally sure, that Numbers 1 is not among them. After all, what we have here are a lot of names, many of them strange-sounding and difficult to pronounce. What we also have here are a lot of numbers and a lot of figures. And finally, what we have here is a chapter made up largely of a refrain. All the men 20 years old or more were able to serve in the army, were listed by name according to the records of their clans and families, the number of the tribe of so-and-so is such and such. And we get to hear those words twelve times. And the result of all of this is that we often assume that here is a Bible chapter that is boring, boring, boring. And in addition, we also assume that here is a Bible chapter largely without any meaning or significance. In other words, it's something that you can safely skip over and no spiritual damage will be done. 
No doubt many of you have heard of the Reader's Digest Condensed Bible. It's a Bible version in which the editors have removed everything that they deem to be obscure, repetitive, or hard to understand or apply. And Numbers 1 is not in it. Indeed, most of Numbers isn't in it. But is that right? It may be popular with a certain crowd, but is it right? I suppose the answer that you give will depend on your overall view of the Bible. If you consider the Bible to be a human book on a religious subject, then you can pretty well cut and paste your heart's content. On the other hand, if you believe it to be a very special book, inspired, infallible, inerrant, coming from God with the Holy Spirit as its primary author, then you have a problem. Then you need to think harder, dig deeper, and handle it surely with a greater measure of care. Yes, and that is now precisely what I propose that we do together this morning. We need to approach this as God's book. We need to do more than simply treat it in a superficial fashion. We need to take all of its words and its chapters to heart and to read them, discuss them, and above all, pray about them for the illumination of the Spirit. And if we do so, some will yield quick and easy results, while others, like the chapter before us, may require some more concerted and concentrated effort. And so let's make the effort. I preached to you this morning on the following theme. The Lord orders that the wilderness community be counted. We're going to look at the reasons for it, the objects of it, and the messages in it. Well, beloved, last Sunday morning I reminded you that Numbers is not the original name of this Bible book. That in the beginning it was called in the wilderness, Hebrew, the Midbar. Here we have the nation of Israel living, walking in the wilderness or in the desert. She's on the way to the promised land. She's left behind Egypt, the house of bondage and slavery, and she's headed to Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. And as such, we also mention that she is very much an in-between church, you might say. The church living between the past and the future, between promise and fulfillment. More specifically, we are told in verse 1 that when Israel, or when Numbers opens, Israel is in the desert of Sinai. She's there in the first day of the second month of the second year. Yes, and it is on that particular day that the Lord spoke to Moses, it says, in the tent of meeting. And what did God say to Moses? Well, he said, take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families. God wants a census to be taken of all the people. Before they march any further into the wilderness, they need to be counted or numbered. 
Why? What's the reason for this? What's the purpose behind it? Well, God doesn't exactly tell us right out or straight away. He doesn't volunteer much of an explanation, and hence we are left to discuss and to decipher. So what could God's reason be for a census? Well, let's begin by remarking that a census usually is rather controversial. Whenever the Canadian government orders that a census be taken, then there are always those who claim that their rights or their privacy is being invaded. In the Bible, we don't hear the same kind of complaints. However, we know that when King David ordered a census to be taken of the people of Israel, it got him into some serious trouble. It almost cost him his throne and his life. So a census, in a way, you can say both then as well as now, spells usually trouble. And yet in our text, there is no evidence of this. Moses doesn't ask God to explain. The people don't demand an explanation from Moses. The, the thing seems to proceed without so much as a hitch. So thankfully, it is not controversial here in our text. But that still leaves the question, why? Why does God order it? Well, one reason may be that it has to do with money. A moment ago, we read from Exodus 30, the verses 11 to 16, and there we hear it said, when you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay a half shekel. Here a census is a way of counting people for the purpose of taxing them or making them pay. No doubt when the Emperor Caesar Augustus ordered that a census be taken of the Roman Empire before the birth of our Lord, he wanted to know how many people he had with the purpose of being able to budget. Budgeting for the future, planning future invasions and armies and so forth. But God is not an earthly king. So why does he want the people's money? Well, in Exodus 30, it appears to be purely for religious reasons or for ceremonial purposes. It was to remind the Israelites that the Lord had ransomed their lives and set them free. In other words, they owe their freedom, their life to him. And it says it was also to support the service of the tent of meeting. But then, beloved, if a census was often driven by economic factors, it could also be driven by pride. When David numbered or tried to number the people, pride was a major factor. He could then boast to other nations and other kings just how great a nation he ruled over. And when Caesar Augustus ordered that a census be taken of his empire, pride was no doubt also a factor. He too wanted to brag and to boast about the size of his empire. And yet, beloved, none of that can apply to God. We can hardly imagine God ordering a census in order that he can boast about that motley crew that he has just liberated from Egypt. 
And their numbers, in a sense, may be rather impressive, but compared to the numbers of the peoples of all the earth whom he's created, it's not much. So pride is out as a reason for God to do this. And at the same time, money is not mentioned at all in Numbers 1. So what drives this census? Well, notice the words at the end of verse 3, able to serve in the army. And notice, too, the words repeated in the refrain, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were counted. It's repeated in verse 20, 22, 24, 26, 28, and so forth. The Lord wants a census to be taken in order that the people of Israel will know just how many people each tribe can muster for battle and what size the army will be as a whole. And of course, he doesn't order this census for his own information. The Lord, being the Lord, already knows how many soldiers he had at his disposal. Now, this is not for his sake. It's for Israel's sake. You see, God knows how we humans think. And he knows as well that numbers mean a lot to us. Here Israel's about to leave Sinai and launch out into the unknown trackless desert. And on the way, she's going to meet all kinds of enemies and all kinds of challenges. And so this census with its large numbers is a way to encourage the people. It's a way of boosting them around. It's one more way that their ranks can be injected with confidence. But it's also something else. It's God's way of reminding his people that now they are to, as it were, transform themselves into an army. From now on, they're supposed to sink like an army, march like an army, train like an army, fight like an army. In other words, God is not a tour guide leading a group of tourists through the desert in order to show them the sights and the sounds of the wilderness. He's not organizing a garden club that is interested in inspecting the flora and the fauna of the desert. No, life is brutal out there. All kinds of forces want to do them in and to destroy them. Going to the promised land is no cakewalk. It will involve pain and struggle and strife and sacrifice and casualties and death. Lots of deaths. And so you see, beloved, the census is God's way of teaching the Israelites, of organizing the Israelites into an army. It's his way of putting his Old Testament church on a war footing. 
Yes, and when we hear that, beloved, that should kind of ring a bell for us today. How do you see the church of Jesus Christ today? Do you still see yourself as part of an army? Do you still sometimes think and talk in militaristic terms? Do you still see fighting as part of the Christian life? Or is it perhaps so that the church of Christ, as church, is now filled with compromise and pacifism? I know that's popular among many today. They feel that compromise and accommodation are the best ways to deal with evil and with the enemy. Are we not supposed to love our enemies, so how can we fight them? Maybe that explains as well why you never hear that old hymn anymore, Onward Christian Soldiers. I'm not saying it was a great hymn, but when was the last time you sung it? I think that's indicative of the fact that as far as a lot of Christianity is concerned, it has pretty well given up the fight. We don't see an antithesis anymore today. So where does that leave us biblically speaking? Where does that leave us with a God who is called the Lord of hosts, which really means the Lord of the armies of heaven? And where does that leave us when it comes to that armor that the Apostle Paul describes and that we've read about in Ephesians 6? And where does that leave us with the words of Peter about resisting the devil? Do we still have a spiritual fight in our hands today? Or have we already turned our swords into plows and our spears into pruning hooks? Beloved, the biblical answer is, you may think the war is over, but the war is still on. The battle still needs to be fought. The church still needs to see itself as an army. And to function as an army. We need to go to war, not against our personal enemies, but against the enemies of God, against the forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, against the authorities and the powers of darkness, against the devil. The time to wage spiritual warfare, beloved, is not over. And you know, this census of Numbers 1 reminds us that the battle isn't yet over. And the church is still an army. But then we should also ask ourselves, what kind of an army is it? Outwardly, it may at times appear to be very committed. 
I think in that connection of the names in our text. Maybe you don't right away realize that, but almost all of these names are very religious. And they're super pious. Elizur means God is my rock. Shalemuel, God is my salvation. Zerai Shaddai, my rock is Shaddai. Nasanael, God is given. Eliab, God is my father. Elishima, my God has heard. Gamaliel, God is my reward. And you can go on and on. Compare our names today with theirs. And we're kind of put to shame, you know. First, we often don't even know the meaning of the names that we give to our children. And secondly, the kind of names that we so often give have more to do with Hollywood or television or soap operas than with God. And thirdly, our reason for choosing certain names for our children has more to do with how they sound than with what they confess. And hence the Israelite army comes across as a lot more committed and God-centered than ours today. It sounds like a pious army. And in addition, it also comes across, beloved, as a numerous army. When each tribe is counted, the numbers are all added up. The grand total of fighting men comes to 603,550. Well, that's a fair-sized army. I remind you, it's bigger than Canada's army. Bigger than the armies of a lot of modern nations. Israel, you might say, has this huge potential to conquer, to win, to triumph. But you know, speaking of potential, the church today is even more. In these days, Christ the King is busy gathering his army from many nations, not just one nation. He is assembling an innumerable multitude of people. And quoting from Genesis and in Hebrews, it says, From one man he is gathering descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. So the army of God, here in numbers as piety, and it has numbers on its side. And yet, beloved, that's not the real source of its strengths. For look, the names are nice. But has it ever struck you that when troubles come and temptations arise, how many of these people actually live up to their fine-sounding names? And the numbers are great. But when the time comes to go into the promised land, the numbers seem to mean nothing. Giants mean more. The numbers. Now the real strength of this army lies neither in the piety of its people nor in the number of its troops, but it lies in the Lord. Specifically, it lies in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You all know he too has as many names, many exalted names. But you know that's not what counts in the end. What counts in the end is that he lives up to and he fulfills every one of those names. He really is Jesus Savior. He really is Christ anointed. He really is the great I am God. He really is Lord, Master and owner of all. Is Christ has many names. And Christ also has the power. Among his final words to his church on earth where the words all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. The power of the church is not its numbers. Not in its hundreds of thousands or in its millions of members or whatever. Power of the church. The power of this army lies in Jesus Christ, the risen and ascended reigning Lord. So what kind of army is the church? It's the army of God. It's the army of Christ. It's life, strength, power, and piety all come from him. Yes, and you and I do well to remember that. So easily and so often we look at the church with human eyes and human terms. And what we fail to see is the power of heaven that sustains her. And the spirit of the Lord that fills her. Or as the psalmist put it long ago, the Lord is the strength of his people. And so, beloved, our text teaches us that the church is an army. An army ultimately whose piety and power come from God. But there are also a few more messages in our passage. For one... Perhaps you noticed it. This is an army in which everyone counts. God values this entire community. And you see that in the expressions that you find in the refrain. First of all, we are told that the Israelites were counted and listed by name. And second, we are told that they were counted and listed one by one. And that goes for all of them, even the outsiders. Exodus 12, 38 says that many other people went up with them. In other words, all the people who left Egypt, they weren't all the descendants of Jacob. And so what did Moses do? Did he organize a 13th tribe of odds and ends? No, they're all placed. Everyone's included. God has them all numbered and counted Name by name, one by one. When you read that, and then you think of today, we live in a rather an increasingly impersonal society. I sometimes think you and I are no longer names, we are sin numbers and pin numbers. 
We're not people. We're simply statistics that computers can count. And how good it is to know that there's at least one place in the world where we still count and still matter. And that's in the church and the army of God. But if we all matter in this army, notice something else. We all have a task to perform and a role to play. Numbers 1 tells us about Moses, the leader, about the clans and the families, about the heads of the families, about the leaders of the tribes, about thousands of men and many more men and women. And as you read this and as you read the subsequent chapters, you see everyone has his or her place, his or her function, his or her responsibility. They all have their talents. They all have their contributions to make. They can all support and help one another. And is it not the same in the New Testament church or army? Scripture sometimes likens the church to a vine in which there are many branches or to a body in which many parts are at work or a building in which each stone supports the other. In short, in all of its diversity, we belong together. We're to work together. No one here is superfluous. No one here is redundant or expendable. God has given us each a task, a place, a role, a duty. So we have here an army in which everyone counts, in which everyone can make a contribution. And of course we have here an army in which everyone should also obey the leader. And that's what Israel did. The census was taken and we're not told that anyone has to be exempted or refused. No, they all obeyed. You see it at the end, for example, verse 54. The Israelites did all just as the Lord commanded Moses. They all obeyed. And of course, you and I know it didn't remain that way. Later on, they would challenge the leadership of Moses and they would ignore the warnings of the Lord and they would abandon God's exclusive worship and they would despise His holiness. But still, the call to listen and to obey is never retracted. It remains in force. It's always to characterize the army and the church of Jesus Christ. My beloved, obedience, think of it, obedience even characterizes our supreme commander. Hebrews 5 verse 7 says, He was heard because of his reverent submission. And Hebrews 5, 8 says, and don't ask me how to explain that fully, he learned obedience. Christ's obedience and submission was perfect. Sadly, ours is not. But thankfully, however, it also says he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey Him. 
So this army often fails in rendering complete and full obedience. But the great thing is it has a king and a general who covers its sins and who sets it straight and who keeps on leading it onward to triumph and to glory. Beloved, our God has called also you, name by name, one by one. He's called you for a purpose into his army, his service, his church. You all count. You all have talents. You all have Christ as king. So put on your armor, march out, and fight the good fight faith. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.